Adventures. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Taylor Jenkins Reid. She's the acclaimed author of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, One True Loves, Maybe in Another Life, and Forever Interrupted. Her latest novel is Daisy Jones and the Six, a fantastic rock and roll novel about the rise of an iconic band in the 1970s, published by our friends at Ballantine Books. Taylor will be joining us at the North Carolina Book Festival on Saturday, February 22nd at Kings in Raleigh, North Carolina, where she will be in conversation with Amelia Meath from Sylvan Esso and Mountain Man. Taylor, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Taylor, first of all, I loved this book, Daisy Jones and the Six, and I'm going to ask you all about it. You're very welcome. Thank you for writing it. Um, I'm going to ask you all about it in a moment, but I saw on your Twitter account that you recently wished your husband a happy birthday by saying that it should be a good year, if for no other reason than because your kid sleeps now. Um, And I I have a son, Van, who is three, almost four, and getting him to sleep early on in his life was a struggle, to say the least, and is still sometimes as he has regressions but how have you dealt with the writing of this novel and the publicity cycle of this novel with a child who doesn't sleep uh, thank you for asking that question because <laughs> that is the majority of my life uh, my daughter's actually very close in age to your son she's just a little bit younger she's almost three and a half mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know I think some people just get babies that are good sleepers and people get babies that aren't and my baby wasn't um mm-hmm. And so it took us a little while. And I will say that the publication of The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, the writing of Daisy Jones, and even some of the of the publicity for Daisy Jones is a whirl in my head mm-hmm. that I don't have um, even sometimes firm memories of. The writing of Daisy Jones in particular, I started that when my daughter was three months old, mm-hmm. and I finished it by the time she had turned one. Mm-hmm. And so it was so much of just getting things done when you can um, not when you want to or when the spirit strikes you or any of that Um, I definitely learned a new way of prioritizing my time and any you know uh, preciousness about my work and my um, you know like creative output it was the first thing to go Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I'm better for it. So um, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens now that I have this new way of working, and my kids sleep through the night now. Maybe I'll be a super, who knows? Right, excellent. Well, congratulations, Taylor. I know that's very hard to accomplish. Um, I want to ask you about the inspiration for this novel. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you are a musician or that you've been a musician for long because you write in your acknowledgement section uh, that Alex, your husband, taught you about music theory, but you also write in the acknowledgement section about Stevie Nicks, Christine McVie, and Lindsay Buckingham. Uh, how much did Fleetwood Mac and Rumors serve as a direct inspiration on Daisy Jones and the Six? Um, that's a really good question. So I'm not a musician. I've never been a musician. My brother and my husband and my father-in-law are all um, various different types of musicians, be they amateur or professional or whatever. Um, You know, music was never my thing in my family. It was always somebody else's thing in my family. Um, But I 
I have always been really fascinated by the dynamics of Fleetwood Mac. The interpersonal dynamics as much as the as the actual dynamics of what leads to their music. So for me, what's interesting about them is not just um, that, you know, Stevie and Lizzie have this complicated relationship and Christine McBee and John McBee and, you know, and then Stevie and, uh, and Nick Fleetwood. It's, that's interesting. And then there's also the fact that there's three songwriters in that band and that when you listen to um, almost any of their albums, you can feel the sense of this third is Lindsay's and this third is Stevie's and this third is is Christine McVie's. Um, certain albums, it doesn't shake down quite as neatly as that. Um, so I was fascinated by those two things, the, the complicated um, personal life, but then also when you have different creative forces working together that need each other in order to do their best work, um, but then the interpersonal makes it difficult to stand each other. Um, and obviously we think about Fleetwood Mac when we think about that dynamic, but the thing is, is like, that's true of the Beatles. That's true of, um, this band that I was really taken with, um, called the Civil Wars that broke up in 2013. Um, if any band is the impetus for this, it's the Civil Wars. Um, but once I got the idea from the Civil Wars, I thought, well, now is the time to do a deep dive into Fleetwood Mac. And, um... I always liked them, but writing this book, I spent so much time listening to rumors and listening to the, you know, um, the White Owl and listening to Tusk, and uh, I am now just completely madly in love with that entire band. Thank you, Taylor. And do you think that Lindsey Buckingham should have been kicked out of Fleetwood Mac? Oh man, see, this is difficult because I'm torn between so many of my loves. Um, I will say this: it. As a Fleetwood Mac fan, it hurt. It hurt, um, especially because you want. They've been together for so long, and they've been through so many things um, that you know. Obviously, the idea that when they truly do all stop making music, they do so together. That's this wonderful romantic idea that that you know over the course of this this messy story it's a happy ending um but i don't know them personally and i think that um you know it sounds like stevie nicks had, had enough and so i gotta i gotta support stevie on this so i think there's there's no good answer thank you so much taylor um next i want to ask you about the format of this novel i was a huge fan of and remain a huge fan of vh1's behind the music documentary series and this novel is written in the style of uh one of these documentaries or a similar musical documentary which is to say it's a transcription of interviews with the band uh the band's management and family members and also music critics such as writers from rolling stone how did you land on the decision to tell the story in this way um, it's a really good question. It, what it was for me is that um, I really wanted to take readers on a journey of feeling like they were looking behind the curtain at a real band. Um, it felt like a different book to write it as a straight novel about um, this fictional band in the 70s. I, I wanted to cut through that distance of fiction and make you feel like 
you are getting to read the most delicious gossip inside look at the band that you've loved for for years. Obviously, that's not true. The band didn't exist, but I thought it would be more effective as as a book as a whole if it felt like the band was real and you were getting sort of voyeuristic look into finally getting the truth. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times in, in our culture, when we're telling the story, when we're telling rock stories, we're telling them as documentaries. Um, or, you know, we're telling them as a behind the music episode or even in oral history, um, which is which is the format in which I've done it. Oral histories are normally used for nonfiction. Um, and so I just thought, well, what if I take this nonfiction format and I use it to tell a fictional story? And that's where the idea came about. But for me... There was no story without telling it in this way. I don't think this book could exist as um, in a more traditional narrative. It could only be what it is. Thank you so much, Taylor. And this book, Daisy Jones and the Six, is blurbed by Reese Witherspoon and was a pick of Reese's book club. Uh, what does an endorsement from Reese Witherspoon mean for an author like you, Taylor Jenkins Reid, and for a book like Daisy Jones and the Six? Yeah, well, I, I will say, you know, personally, it's very exciting. Um, I've been a fan of hers for a really long time, and it's really been fun to see what she has been for storytelling because she's taking these books and she's making these incredible shows out of them and people are paying more attention um, to the books that she chooses for her book club. Um, all of that is really great and really exciting um, for a number of reasons. But the thing that was so special so special about it for me is that Reese Witherspoon does an amazing job of championing women's stories, stories that women are telling about their lives. And that's what I've been doing from the beginning. Uh, I'm obviously I'm a woman, but but also I've really tried very hard to ignore the messages that I'm getting day in and day out, um, as we all are, that men's stories are of more import, they're more significant, they are more interesting. Um, I'm really trying, and I'm looking at the women in my life and the women that I see and the experiences that I'm having, um, I'm trying to write stories about what it's like to be a woman in our society, whether it's today or in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or whatever. Um, and Reese is doing that too. And so for her to, to read this book and to, um, to have confidence that this is a story done well, um, it's nice that our objectives are the same and, and um, it's, it's just been a lovely experience having her behind this book. Thank you so much. Listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsors and then I will be right back with Taylor jenkins Reed. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. 
you know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Taylor Jenkins Reed, author of Daisy Jones and the Six, which is published by our friends at Ballantine Books. Taylor, I want to ask you about Daisy Jones. Daisy is introduced to us as an underage groupie who hung out on Sunset Strip, did drugs, and slept with musicians. Talk to us about the decision to make Daisy a groupie, uh, the decision to write about the rise of a groupie, and the quote-unquote glamour of being a groupie at this time, which is the mid-60s to early 70s in this place, Los Angeles, California? Um, yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because I think we do glamorize the life of a groupie um, and certainly the life of the musicians in the 70s who were sleeping with groupies. Uh, when I first started to think about who Daisy Jones would be and how she would break into this landscape... I thought it was important to put it to put her in the context of how most women were regarded in music during that time and what she had to fight against. She has a real sense of self-importance that that what she has to say is very important and she should be listened to and she should be um, valued for the things that she has to say, not only what she looks like and, and her sexuality. Um, and in order to ground that, you have to know why she has to be so forceful about those things. And so to me, there's no better example of the way that we have a very complicated relationship with teenage girls than the way we, we glorify um, that period of time uh, and that scene for those young girls. There were a lot of musicians who were sleeping with underage girls and that was considered cool and nobody cared um it's in it's the it makes it into the lyrics of songs you know even the beatles you know she was 17 you know what i mean a number of young groupies who were 13 to 14 years old dating 20 something musicians um and so we've seen that rendered in certain movies and TV shows and documentaries as something that was a glamorous time and place. And so I wanted to say, okay, I'm sure it sounded glamorous, but let's look into what it was really like. Because I think what it was really like is young girls like Daisy Jones at the time trying to figure out who they are and trying to be somebody and to matter in some way and this being their only option. Um, I have no... Um, objection at all with the idea of a groupie if that woman wants to be a groupie and has the agency of choosing it and that's what they want to do. Um, I just don't think that's as often the case as we like to believe. And so I wanted to start Daisy there in that place of being dismissed for her mind. No, if you're not a musician, I'm the musician, but you can be special by getting close to me. Um, I wanted her to experience that and then ultimately try to reject that. Although that in and of itself is somewhat of a fairy tale because not every woman can um, come out of it the way that, that Daisy Jones did. 
right thank you so much that was a fantastic answer and juxtaposed yeah thank you juxtaposed with Daisy uh, we have the rise of the Dunn brothers Billy and Graham Dunn who eventually formed the six you introduce the Dunn brothers by talking about their family history how their father left them and they were raised by their single mother and then you describe them by alluding to uh, Billy as a Bob Dylan guy and Graham as a Roy Orbison guy explain what you mean by this and then maybe talk a little broader about why these musical juxtapositions along with the one you later make between the Beatles and the Stones always work mm. well you know for for Billy and Graham um, you know they they don't have a, a father figure they're raised by a single mother um, that was true for me and my brother as well for um, the majority of our lives and I think that when you don't have and, and I think this is also true, by the way, even when you when, even when you do have both parents. But um, for us, there was definitely a sense that you we were looking elsewhere for some of the instructions um, about how to live. And so, for for me, thinking about who Billy is and thinking about who Graham is and what they wanted, um, you know, who are the men that they're going to look to? And it's it's interesting because on the one hand, there are huge differences between Bob Dylan and Roy Orbison, right? There's huge differences between the Beatles and the Stones. But at the same time, um, you have to get into the nitty gritty of, of music to really understand those differences from, from, you know, four distances back, we're all just talking about rock stars. And I think that's kind of what it is with, with Billy and Graham. Billy sees himself as someone who has, again, who has something to say the way that, that Daisy feels. And, and you know, Bob Dylan is, is the perfect idol for someone that feels like they want to write poetry for people to listen to. Um, you know, Roy Orbison being more interesting for Graham because Graham is a, is a musician who's not super as interested in lyrics. He's much more interested in the sound. And so, you know, I think that uh, we can tell a lot about the finer details of them by these choices. But at the same time, these are two brothers that think they're very different, but I'm not sure they're as different as they they see themselves as when you take a few steps back because they both just want to be rock stars they both want to be you know playing um rock and roll to huge audiences um and i think that's what's interesting about uh, about so much of rock at that time is that it was very it was varied and it was different um but to generations you know older than than the young kids it all sounded <laughs> the same Right, thank you. And hearkening back to the influence of Fleetwood Mac in the Civil Wars, um, I want to talk about the relationships amongst band members, specifically the relationship between Billy Dunn and his wife Camilla, and the relationship between Graham Dunn and the Six's keyboard player Karen Karen. Can you talk to us about how these relationships differ and about the influence they have on band dynamics within the Six? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, well, you know, Billy and Camila have a much more traditional um, relationship than almost anyone else in the band. They marry early. They have children. Camila, um, you know, is 
is kind of what I'm talking about when I say that there are some there's for some women, you know, the role of of supporting a famous or talented man is exactly what they want. And that works for them. Um, Camila wants to be the wife of a rock star. And she wants to take care of her children. And everything in her life is the result of her agency and direct forcefulness of, of getting what she wants. She wants to be married to Billy. She wants to raise his kids. Um, Graham and Karen, who have a complicated relationship throughout the book, part of their conflict is that I think Graham would like somebody like Camila. But Karen is a musician. She is a keyboardist, and that is what she plans on doing for her entire life. She's not going to stop that or give that up in order to raise kids. Um, That's not a goal that she has. It's not something that is important to her. Um, And so the tension in their relationship is that they don't want the same things. Um, What... I think part of the more interesting piece of the story to me is that Camila and Karen, who want two very different things, um, are incredibly close friends and incredibly supportive of each other's right to, to live whatever version of life that they want, despite the fact that in some ways, you know, what Karen wants is you know, to make sure she never has Camila's life. Um, But that doesn't make them competitive or antagonistic. And one person's choices are not an indictment of another person's choices. It's just, you know, people are different. Um, And I I wanted to put that forward, that in Daisy and Camila and Karen and Simone, Daisy's friend, you know, there are a number of different ways to navigate this world as a woman. and none of them are wrong, and none of them are, are any more right than any others. Thank you so much. Um, Taylor, much of this book builds towards the recording of the album Aurora by Daisy Jones and the Six and the tour for this album. Uh, we're in the late 70s now, 1977 through 78, in this period of the book, and the album Aurora is being recorded. Billy Dunn, the primary songwriter for the band, uh, much to the band's chagrin at times, writes a song called Impossible Woman. Everyone but Billy and possibly Daisy knows that this is a song about Daisy Jones. This passage is sort of the center of the whole novel, in my opinion. Um, And this type of moment, of course, transcends this novel and happens often in the world, especially amongst artists. Uh, My question is, how do people, groups, families, friends, survive situations like this when Billy presents this song, Impossible Woman, cannot see himself clearly, and disaster seems the most likely road ahead for everyone involved? Mm. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question because I, I think that there's so much gray area and so much of... Um, I mean, so often when we can't see ourselves... Uh, there's no like in fiction you see a definitive answer a lot of times we can look from the outside of Billy and say like okay I've read the lyrics to this I think that this is why you did it Billy's the only one who knows why he did it and he's telling us that he didn't 
And so as much as it may seem cut and dry, it's never going to feel cut and dry to anyone involved. Even if they say that it is, I don't I don't think that it ever feels that way. And I think, you know, for me as a writer, there are certainly things in my life that work their way into my work. And some of it I see and some of it I don't, Um, you know, but I make that. I make my own reality. So until I'm willing to face what's in my work, it's not there. It's not there to me. Um, and there's no conversation to be had about it with the people around me. Um, so in this instance, I think, you know, Camila can think it's about Daisy, but she's not going to be sure until Billy talks about it. And Daisy can think it's about Daisy, but she's never going to fully be sure until he says that. And so it's all a lot of, sort of unsettling gray area. And I think in general, I can't speak for every person, but I think there are a lot of people that when you enter that, this moment where you're never gonna have the real truth, most people um, will let sleeping gut lie in a really interesting way, I think. I think if we look at our lives, there are a number of moments where we can look back on and be like, I think that sort of happened, but just like no one acknowledged it. Um, and, and I think it's sometimes the human condition to just let it alone, um, which is another really fun thing to write about. Right. Thank you so much, Taylor. And finally, at the end of this novel, Daisy Jones and the Six, you have included the lyrics for all of the songs on the album, Aurora. Did you do this for fun and to add context, or do you intend for someone to record this album? Um, well, actually, I would say it's it's sort of um, in between those answers. Um, you know, it, the the book is becoming a TV show, so the Aurora album will be made. It's not going to be made by me, and it'll have different lyrics because it's going to be written um, by professional uh, musicians and songwriters. Um, but, but the album will exist, and people will get to hear their sound. Uh, which is really exciting. But but for me, apart from whether or not any of the music of Daisy Jones would ever get made, the reason why I wrote the lyrics for the entire album of Aurora, and I had that was my plan from the very beginning before I'd written even a single word of the book, was because, you know, I, we're going on this journey of this band and these two songwriters who are writing songs about each other and they're doing it together in this weird self-denial sort of space and billy says something isn't about daisy and daisy says it is about her or daisy says this song is about billy and billy's saying no it's not um in order to go on that journey i felt like if i was reading the book I would want to know these lyrics. You're telling me about someone, so let me decide for myself. Let me read the art that was created in 1977 when tensions were high, when they're making this. Let me read that and decide for myself who's right. Because in an oral history, you're getting everybody's point of view. There's no one you know, narrative throughout. There's not one narrator who's saying this is the truth or this isn't. It's everybody's point of view. It's everybody's opinion and nobody's exactly right. So the only thing that you can read unbiased or maybe not unbiased, but unfiltered through someone else is this art that they made. Um, and so to me, 
to write this whole book around that art and not include that art felt like um you know felt felt like kind of like swerving at the last minute um you have to i felt uh had the option at least as a reading to decide for yourself what these songs are about and what they mean Thank you, Taylor. Uh, Listeners, I've been speaking with Taylor Jenkins-Reed, author of Daisy Jones and the Six, published by our friends at Ballantine Books. Taylor will be joining us at the North Carolina Book Festival on Saturday, February 22nd at Kings in Raleigh, North Carolina, where she will be in conversation with Amelia Meath from Sylvan Esso and Mountain Man. Taylor, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Taylor Jenkins Reed for joining me. Copies of Daisy Jones and the Six can be purchased in person at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com. The North Carolina Book Festival is February 21st through 23rd in Raleigh, North Carolina, featuring all of your favorite national, international, and local best-selling and award-winning authors. More information can be found at w www.ncbookfestival.com My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Bookin'.